Let's uh, pray together. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us. You are faithful. You are faithful in all things. Even when we are faithless, you are faithful, for you cannot disown yourself. And so it is with confidence, Father, that I appeal to you for mercy for us, a people, desperately in need of your word. We have lived according to the devices and the intentions and plans of our mind, and we are in a mess on many issues and many levels. And so, Father, would you grant to us that grace of understanding and hope uh, that as we hear your word that we will be transformed into, um, into a Christ-likeness that would be pleasurable for us, that would be glorious for you. And, Father, I pray that um, many of us are uh, flagging in faith, we're fatigued in body, our minds are slow, uh, but Lord, your spirit is great, uh, your word is powerful, your son is victorious, and so, uh, Father, bring joy to us uh, by moving through your spirit in these words into the heart of your people, transforming us into uh, your people in greater glory. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, how do you handle, I, I, I need you uh, to really join with me in this sermon. How do you handle when people attack you or when you've been the subject of gossip or you've been maligned or you've been misrepresented to people? I mean, I mean how do you handle that? Do you, um, do you brood and, and boil up in an anger? Uh, do you curl up in a ball and cry? Do you respond back? with the same measure that you've been struck with? Do you just ignore it and try to hope that it's going to go away? I mean, how do you handle that? I mean, I'm sure just about all of you, if you've lived long enough, have come under that sort of pressure or that sort of conflict. You've been in the middle of strife. You know, I find myself in it frequently. find it very uncomfortable. Really don't like to be misrepresented. I I tend to want to fix all the wrong impressions that people may have of me. It's not comfortable to be perceived in the mind of a person differently than you know that you are or you're trying to be. It's very hard. Well, you know, we've been going through these psalms in the summer to try to give you help. You know, the psalms, really, of, of David particularly, are giving us these, this language with which we can appeal to God so that when we're in struggle or trial, that here are words that we can have to express our emotions, our struggles to God, whether it be time of joy, like last week in Psalm 103, or times of sorrow. You know, if you think back over what we've studied, we've looked at that struggle that we have with suffering, and so we looked at Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? I mean, that that is the cry of the heart when you're engaged in long-term suffering, is it not? And so we saw how, how words can be used to give to God and, and feelings engaged to be able to deal with that. Or we looked at uh, when we struggle with the nature of sin in our lives. Sometimes we're just despairing over who we actually are. And so there's Psalm 130, you know, out of the depth of my soul I cry to you, he says. Or, or Luke preached from Psalm 42 and 43 about how do we handle that depression when we hit those dark days of of abs- feelings of utter meaninglessness and valueless. That, that, what do we say to God? How do we respond? And so this psalm, David, is really, if you will, laying his complaint before God over the despair on his heart 
Now, not from suffering, not from sin, but from being attacked by other people. Our prayer is that it would be your words now. You know, you'll see in, the, in Psalm 56, in the superscription, which is the little lettering underneath your number, it's called a miktam. Now, we don't really know exactly what that means. A related word means indelible mark or stain. And, and I'm hoping that this might make an indelible mark on your soul. So that, so that when you do come back in the firing line of gossip or slander or misrepresentation or someone stirring up strife, that you might not return the volley as it's been fired to you, that you might be marked by God's Spirit to come to this text and say, how do I respond? God wants to instruct me through his word. So let's read together this psalm, and, um, and then I'll try to explain it. Psalm 56.1, to the choir master, according to the dove on far off, Tirbenth's, a miktam of David. Now he gives us the context when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And the psalm picks up, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly, or literally from on high. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long, they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Okay, so the context is, is clear. Not all psalms have these superscriptions with context, and so we're thankful that they are there. Um, but David is, again, opening his chest up, showing you the struggles that he has in his life. You know, I, I do think David's a great example for us, but it's also an example for us to open our own lives up, frankly, and, and to share what God has been doing, both for the, the good and the chastisement, but also the blessing. But so David opens his life up, and he explains that he's been seized in Gath. Now, the story comes from uh, 1 Samuel 21, 10 to 15. And if you remember the story, David is fleeing Saul. Saul is the king of Israel. And, uh, and King Saul is hounding and chasing David. Uh, he is threatened by David, and uh, his throne is being threatened by David. And so he is attempting to kill him. Uh, many of you don't know this, perhaps, but actually Saul was David's father-in-law. So when I read that, I thought, well, somebody had it worse than I did. But um, I can say that because I love my father-in-law, kind of. Uh, no, that's, that is a joke. We'll remove that from the podcast. So what, what is so bad that David is running to Gath. Gath is a Philistine town. 
the dreaded, the hated enemy of Israel. Not only is it a Philistine town, but it's the home of Goliath. Goliath is that warrior that David killed. And so it shows you the absolute intensity of his fear against Saul that he would run to his enemy. And of course, when he runs there, he is seized. He is seized. It's actually, go back and read the story. It's quite humorous in the sense that David feigns or fakes insanity, and they bring him to King Achish, the king of Gath. And Achish looks at him and says, do I need more crazy people? I mean, that's what he literally says. Do I need more crazy people? But, but it shows you the intensity of David in fear running to Gath. And this is when he is surrounded from without and from within. He kind of jumped out of the pan right into the fire. And this is when he turns to God. So what David is giving us here is this situation, and we're going to see how he handled it. He appeals to God and he says, Oh God, be gracious to me. Oh, be gracious to me. And then what David does is he lays his complaint out before God. And, and he just talks to God. He says, men trample me. And then he goes right to the plural. My enemies trample me. It's the same word. It's, you just see the parallelism there. That he's being chased and hunted. That word for trample, by the way, means panting after. So in your mind, you can get this, this vision of David running. And he's being chased. And they're not giving him any break. There's no time to stop. There's no time to rest. He can't even catch his breath. They're not even catching their breath. They are going after him to kill him. And it says they attacked me proudly or from on high. In other words, these people were probably, it was probably Saul or it was King Achish because it was a man of authority. And you know how you feel when you're being maligned by someone in a higher position, then you feel even more despairing. And so David is this hunted man, not even able to catch his breath. He's being chased to be killed. Now look, in verse 5, he continues to go on. He says, all day long they injure my cause. That can be translated, they twist my words. They manipulate what I say. He says, their thoughts against me are for evil. In other words, they're not just acting on anger, but they're thinking about it. I mean, David knows these people are actually conniving and thinking evil things that they might bring to him. Look, it says in 6, they stir up strife. They're not satisfied just to go after David. They want to go after David's relationships. They lurk. You know, the premeditation, kind of the evil intent there. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. So you kind of see this situation here where he is absolutely hemmed in, surrounded, threatened, in deep fear, terrified. So that's the scene that we have here. Look in verse 7 and 8, because he turns to God and he finishes his prayer. The prayer really begins with, Be gracious to me, O God. Then he says, he says, For their crime will they escape. Now, I think that's rhetorical. We know they won't, because what follows is, In wrath, he prays, cast down the peoples. So David is praying for their the wrath of God coming down on them. Now, we don't feel comfortable with these prayers. These are called imprecatory prayers when you're kind of asking for God's wrath to come down on people. And, uh, but I want you to know, David isn't looking for a pound of flesh. He's not looking for some personal revenge. He, he's not trying to just get the scales leveled. He wants the justice of God displayed and declared. He wants God's people upheld. So really, in, in some ways, the Christian can still pray these prayers. You kind of do when you pray the Our Father. You know, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom coming is going to bring justice. It's going to bring 
the removal of oppression. It's going to bring the judgment of sin. So, so, and we can pray these prayers, actually. We just want to pray them recognizing that that justice would roll right over us if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. And so when we pray for justice, be mindful that you want to pray that standing under the cross because God's justice would roll over you apart from Christ. In Christ it has rolled on him. But this is David's situation. So this is really a picture for the believer. It's a picture for the, for the child of God. All of you, number one, conflict is going to be common to all of you. You're going to face conflict. It may not be exactly in these terms, but you will face conflict. You notice it's not just about physical attack, because in verses 5 and 6, he's talking about manipulation with words, evil intentions, strife. I mean, the reality of it is, all of us, even as children of God, will face this kind of strife anger, and conflict. I mean, for the students here, it can be getting cut out of a group. It it can be, you know, that your friends or those who once were your friends all of a sudden turn on you. They use your words against you. They stir up strife. They gossip about you. And all of a sudden, you're in this position of feeling quite alone. It can be students towards parents, parents trying to be parents, maybe perhaps exercising some appropriate restriction on kids, and the kids think, well, gee, they're an enemy to me. I mean, they're opposing me. We don't use the term enemy anymore, really. We use it for terrorists. But what I'm speaking in this passage is it's more than just the person with a different uniform shooting at me. I'm talking about those people that are attacking me. I think sometimes this takes place in our marriage. In our marriage where it may be our spouse that is the one that is most opposing us. I mean, they can be the deadliest, right? I mean, they know us the most intimately. The spouse can literally be, because I was thinking when I was reading this, I don't feel like I have enemies. Now, you guys may want to beg to differ with that, but I, I mean, I don't feel like I have them. And then as I started thinking about this, no, that there are people that maybe are quite opposed to you or to me. It may be in marriage. I, I think about in the business place, in, in the marketplace. I mean, it's a dog-eat-dog world is an expression we use. And so sometimes the only friend in the marketplace is the enemy of your enemy. That becomes your friend. Uh, Sometimes I wonder if we're not our own enemies. Uh, Some of the actions that we may do inflict great pain and punishment on us. I think about the expression we use. I'm my own worst what? Enemy. I I mean, sometimes we actually act against ourselves. And so when we think about this psalm, I, I want you to know that that conflict and this strife is common to us. It's common to all of us. I mean, perhaps you're in it right now. I mean, think about it. it is, are you in great opposition with your spouse, your kids? Is it a family member? Is it someone in this church? Is it someone outside this church that has spoken about you, that you're angry at, you feel attacked by? Is there someone that has really injured you and not reconciled themselves to you, that you're fighting Anger borderlining on hatred? Well, you're not going to let it go to hatred. You're just not going to talk to them anymore. But, but you're going to distance yourself from them. Is that what you're struggling with right now? Because it's not, it, conflict is going to be common to us. But not only that, conflict will exist within the soul of the believer. And in other words, there's going to be fear and faith in you. Notice in verse 4 when David says, or in verse 3, he says, When I'm afraid, I'll put my trust in you. I mean, David was afraid. He did face fear. He did face struggle. He just chooses to put his faith in God. But, but there is, within the believer, one Puritan theologian said, believers are often like the twilight. There is still light, 
but there's also some darkness. In other words, there's still that struggle between fear and faith. We want to believe in God, but we still struggle with fear. And I just don't want you thinking that the Christian life is all about, well, I'm walking by faith entirely. That we do struggle with fear and faith, existing within us, as David did. I mean, David expresses this trust in God. I will put my trust in you, he says in verse 4. And then in verse 5, he goes right back to the fear that he has from, from his enemies. So, I mean, as believers, we struggle with this. And it's a battle that we'll have to the end. Uh, Law, a great Puritan bishop, said, um, nat- or an uh, Anglican bishop, says natural feelings, or the feelings of fear, he says, have deep roots and will continue to spring up in the most enlightened heart. It just happens. Now, we want to fight it with faith, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But it, but it does happen. What we do, and what we see David do here, is instead of complaining to people, Instead of complaining to one another, he lays his complaints out before God. He says, to those that are attacking him, so in your mind you're thinking, who is in my life that I would literally consider one who is opposing me? And you're thinking, well, lay out your complaints before God. That's what he did. He said, Lord, they're trampling on me. Be gracious to me. He lays it all out. The Christian knows that God hears his prayers. The Christian knows that God is able. We turn and wait for God. We don't try to manipulate the situation. We're not trying to right the wrongs. We're not trying to fix things. We first just turn to God. I I was reminded of Psalm 123, where the psalmist writes, Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes will look to the Lord our God, until he has mercy on us. That delay, displaying faith. I'm going to look to you, God, to deliver me. I'm going to lay out my complaints. I'm not going to talk about it to everybody else. I'm just going to talk to you about it. I'm going to turn to you. You're able to do something about this situation. I'm going to turn the other cheek in the sense of I'm not going to try to find retribution by freezing them out. Particularly in marriage, we can do this wonderfully. There's opposition, there's conflict, and we just freeze each other out. Maybe the husband may go angry, he may go loud, he may go powerful. The wife gets cold, she freezes out, or she gets angry. I mean, I don't know how you all play it. Everybody has their own styles of dealing with the conflict, but what the psalmist is calling for is appeal to God. Wait until you receive mercy from him. So so this is the situation, and you kind of see how David's handling it. He's making a plea for deliverance. Now, I don't think this psalm is looking at Christ prophetically. I I don't think the psalm you're supposed to, where can I find Christ in there? I I don't know that the psalm is for that. But I do know that Christ's life actualized this psalm. I mean, Jesus did, in fact, face such objects, scorn, conflict, ridicule, anger, bitterness, people pursuing him. And what do we see him doing? We see him turning to God for mercy, for deliverance. He turns to God. He didn't turn to people. He just appealed. He laid it out before God. Okay, so at this point, I'm hoping that you're thinking, okay, I do have some people in my life that I'm struggling with that I find are opposing me. And so what do we do? What did David do? Because David turned to make a plea for deliverance. But most people have trouble doing that. So when you're you're in conflict, you want to generally the first thing is defense or attack or silence. And David didn't do that. Look in verse 8. I just want to pull out a couple principles that I'm hoping will be instructional from the text, but also practical for you. In verse 8, he now looks at God. 
And he speaks to him directly. And this is where I want you to see hope in the midst of the conflict you may have. He says, you have kept count of my tossings. Now, tossings, it could refer to David being pursued in the wilderness by Saul. Um, Either way, I think it's the anguish on his heart, either by being pursued or being attacked or being opposed. But but the tossings are, are, are similar to the way you may feel at night when you're, you know, in your mind and you're laying down. You're in the midst of conflict. It's tearing apart your soul, and you're just flipping back and forth on your bed. You want to fix it. It can't be fixed. You can't just reach out and change things, and you're tossing back and forth. He's saying God counts those of yours. So every time you're tossing about, struggling, God is counting your struggles. Look what follows. I love this verse. You put my tears in your bottle. I mean, not one tear falls to the ground apart from God knowing the tear and the occasion that caused the tear. I mean, you may have a close friend that is really able to empathize with you and mourn with you, but none can count your tears. None can keep them for you in a bottle. None can write them down for you. I mean, the amazing mercy of God here, that he would count our, t- that he would count our tossings, he would collect our tears, and he would record them all in a book. I mean, this is the picture of God in the Old Testament. Merciful. I mean, I, I, I came across in a, a magazine about a new children's Bible translation called the Brick Bible. And it's a book written, or it's a Bible written for children. And the storyline is pictured in Legos. And if, if you were to buy this book, you'd see a picture of God. He's about a two-inch Lego. He's really not, but that's what they picture him as. And he is, that's all a picture of him. He's angry. He's vengeful. His eyes are scrunched. He's holding the commands like this, the commandments. And he looks like he's ready to duke it out with just about anybody. And, and that is a modern-day translation. I mean, to think of God as merciful really runs contrary to many of your opinions of God in the Old Testament. But this is, this is the mercy of God. One Old Testament scholar said this, He knows each day of his tossings, each nook in which he has found shelter, each step that he has taken, every artifice by which he has baffled his foes, all have been numbered by his heavenly keeper. Yea, no tear that he has shed when his eye raised to heaven in prayer has fallen to the ground. I mean, isn't it good to be a child of God? To know that all of your tears, not one has been lost. You wipe them away in a napkin, you throw it away, you never think twice about it. And yet he knows every tear you've ever shed. It is good to be a child of one so merciful. It's good to be, it's good to be adopted by such a caring, gracious God for us. The only way we can fight the fear and fight the temptation to strike back against those who strike us is first to consider this nature of God. He is this kind. He is this good. He is this merciful to us. Many of you have brought great tragedy and sin into life. You've, you've affected others. And, and yet you can appeal to this God through Jesus Christ and find forgiveness and mercy and grace. So let this scripture inform your idea of the God of the Old Testament rather than what you perhaps have perceived in the past. Okay, but secondly, David fights fear. 
uh, by active faith. Look at what he does in, in verse 9. He says, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. So David here, nothing's changed in his scene. His enemies are still there. But he's saying, this I know, God is for me. Now there's when I call to God, he's going to answer me. He's going to drive away my enemies. Because this I know, God is for me. God is for us. He is with us. I mean, it's an encouragement to move with active faith. You know, it's often in times of great conflict that God is asking us to exercise faith so as to receive the comfort that he has for us. There is no comfort to be given when we're not appealing to God. This is why we are thankful. In fact, as Beth read in Psalm 57, that that part that God ordains these things that are putting us in a position that call for active faith so that he gives his marvelous comfort to us, developing that relationship of dependence. But he's calling for you to exercise faith. So when you're conflicted, when you're confronted by people, that I'm calling you right now as part of the sermon. We don't need an altar call here. I'm calling you to believe the scriptures that says, I'm going to move with faith that will find God sufficient for this because God is for me. This is exactly what Paul picked up in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? So I keep saying, what can man do to me? If we believe, if you believe that Jesus is adequate to save you from your sins and shame and guilt, isn't he adequate to save from the conflict that you're currently in? The scriptures are calling us believe. Can you believe God for that? So whatever your situation is, can you believe that God is for you? Now, if you don't feel that God is for you, that's good too. You may be in sin, you may need to confess. You may be apart from God, you may need to be reconciled to him through faith. But as a Christian, God is for you. Many of you don't feel that way. I think you think God's still standing kind of back and aloof, watching your life, waiting for the data to come in before God becomes for you. But for the Christian, in Christ, God is for you. He cannot love you more tomorrow than he does today. You may not have your devotional time tomorrow. He can't love you more because he loves you in the merits of Christ. In union with Christ, he loves you as Christ. God is for you. Folks, I have to keep telling myself that. I always slip back into this performance mentality of if I do these things, then he's for me. If I don't, he's against me. God cannot be against us because we are in Christ. So you remind yourself, God, you're for me. You speak to yourself. Don't listen to yourself, as Martin Lloyd-Jones would say. Okay, thirdly, we fight fear, not just considering that God cares. We fight fear, not just considering that God knows us. We fight fear knowing the nature of man. Consider man. Twice David says, what can flesh do to me? What can man do to me? I mean, the word flesh and man indicate an inherent weakness. I mean, think about it for a minute. We are so quick to turn to men. We are so quick to turn to government. We're so quick to turn to friends. To try to reconcile, to try to bring aid to our conflict. What can man do to us? I mean, man is flesh. We are grass. We're here today, gone tomorrow. You know, you hit your late 20s, you realize you couldn't eat like you did when you were 19. You begin to get a little bit older, your hair begins to turn color. You know, your knees begin to ache. Your body begins to break down. God is so merciful to say, I will not let you live in the illusion you're going on forever. 
So God lets our bodies break down. We are flesh. What can man do to us? Not just that. Beauty is fading. I love sometimes in Fox News, you get these you get these pictures of the stars, you know, the real heart throbs in the 80s. Boy, <laughs> reconstruction cannot help. And then those who do get reconstruction 20 years later, it's really bad. The beauties of the 80s and the 90s, they aren't there. God has designed that beauty is fleeting. Not just beauty, power. Think about power, the Gorbachev and the Reagan. That's just past now. That's gone. The Margaret Thatchers, they're gone. It's history. The power players of today, in 10 years, they're gone. What can man do to us? What can flesh do to us? That's what David's saying. Remind yourself, speak to yourself. What can man do? We turn to government. This election year has got people very, very nervous. And while we want to be good citizens... While we want to vote well, while we want to vote theologically, not simply financially or militarily, we want to think theologically when we vote. But a change of government isn't going to change the plate that we're in. It's not going to resolve the conflict that you have. I mean, let's look at government to do what God has instituted it to do, to bear the sword, to establish law, and to bring a measure of peace. But they can't bring peace that only the gospel can bring. It can only bring an external peace. And we want that. No, no question about it. Because the gospel can, can thrive in that. But we want a real peace that only comes from Christ. So when we look at conflict, remind yourself, what can you do to me? And it begins to dissipate the fear. Uh, fourth, fighting fear. Look at, he says in verse 10, in God whose word I praise. He says it three times. In God, in the Lord whose word I praise. That David is turning to the word of God to find help and comfort. Now listen, you all, I know that probably 95% of you have a very high view of the Bible. I don't know if you have the same confidence in the Bible as your view is of the Bible. Do we turn to the scriptures to find help in conflict? If we're facing this financial threat, do we turn to a Matthew 6 and say, you know what, he takes care of the birds, he takes care of the flowers, I bet you he's going to take care of me because I'm more important than either of them. And then do we believe in it? Do we stand on it? See, the word is where we go to find the nature of God, to find the, 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 the mercy of God, the goodness of God. All that I'm saying is coming from the scriptures. And so apart from the scriptures, you can't know God. Well, you can have thoughts of God, but they're not necessarily right. You know, it's interesting how God's word is so connected to his person. So for a minute, you cannot rest in thinking, well, I believe in God, but the scriptures sometimes I don't know about. They're together. P.B. Warfield was a great theologian in the 19th century. He taught at Princeton, and he wrote this book called uh, Inspiration and Authority, a great book. And I remember reading it and, um, and just being overwhelmed at how in the Old Testament, it will often say God says, and the New Testament writer will say the scripture says. He doesn't say God says, he says the scripture says. Or in the Old Testament, it will say he, referring to God, he says, and then the New Testament it will say the word says or scripture says. In other words, God and his word are together. It may not be so with us. We may be more duplicitous, but not God. What God is, he says. And what God says, he is. And so when you read his word, 
you find comfort and hope. We don't turn in terms of fear and conflict. We're not looking to dig up experiences to help our brother. We're, we're, we're not just going to, you know, this worked for me. We want to go to the Word. What does the Word say on these issues? And, and, and so to fight fear, we have to see what God says about us and about the situation to draw comfort and hope. And, and then the last thing is just to, um, that fighting fear um, involves actually you giving thanks. I know this is crazy, but if you look with me in 12 and 13, he says this, he says, I must perform my vows to you. I will render thank offerings to you. For you delivered my soul from death. Now, actually, at this point, uh, most understand that David had not been delivered from death just yet. He was still facing his enemies. Yes, my feet from falling, but he speaks in the past tense because of his certainty. McLaren was a, a great theologian. He said that God is a God of the future. And so David looks in the future and he knows that God will deliver him. Ultimately, God will deliver him. And so he praises him now for his deliverance that will come. And so when you're in this conflict and it's not being resolved quickly, you're struggling in marriage or with someone in your family, you can still offer thanks. God, you will deliver me from this. I trust you for it. And I'm going to thank you in advance. So so David is in a situation here. We saw the situation he's in. And then these five things from 8 through the end of the chapter, through the end of the psalm there, that that we can do. We can be considering the nature of God, his goodness, his knowledge. We can be actively moving in faith. And what I mean by that, as a reminder, is you say, I'm going to believe God is greater than this. I'm going to believe that God is for me, and I'm going to walk in light of that. We consider the nature of man. Remind yourself that your enemy is only flesh. We cling to the word of God and the promises People, if we would become a church that would hold on to the promises if, as if they were precious jewels, we will be a very happy body of people. We will be a very confident, humbly confident body of people. If we look at the promises of God and all that he declares about himself and all that he is, I'm telling you, it will transform this place further than we've been transformed. And then he gives thanksgivings. Now, let me just remind you, as a New Testament Christian, if you look back with me in verse 13, he says, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before you, before God, in the light of life. Now, Jesus does, in John eight twelve. Jesus does, I believe, pick this verse up. And he applies it to himself. Not saying David saw that, but definitely Jesus says that he is the light of life leading us out of darkness as we follow him. And so I want to remind you that it is in Christ, and for the non-Christian here, but also for the Christian, uh, to be encouraged by that in Jesus, God's promise of deliverance is materialized, if you will. That this promise of deliverance is, is made manifest in Christ. Through the incarnation, through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we see how he has now delivered us from death. So we, as New Testament Christians, as opposed to David, have all the more reason to hope that in conflict, in Christ, that we will overcome, that we can walk by faith with joy. So let me just uh, pray for us now, and then I'll call the servers forward. And uh, as, as always... Um, those of you who are struggling with conflict that need prayer or encouragement or those who are challenged in terms of their own understanding of God or the faith, please come forward and, and um, speak with, with myself or with um, one of the pastors or elders. So let me pray for us and then the service can come forward for communion. Lord, 
I thank you and praise you for your word. I, I am thankful to you even now for the conflict that many of us are in right now. Lord, we want to offer thanks to you for we know that you will deliver us from death, that you will redeem us entirely and fully in Christ. I pray, Lord, for a clear understanding of this word among your people here. I pray that it would encourage them to think to think rightly on your compassion and your care and your mercy. I, I pray, Father, that they would find through your spirit strength to believe that you are for them. I pray that you would give them increased wisdom to know that men are flesh. Here today, gone tomorrow. Father, give them a hunger for the richness of your promises that you and your word are for us to reveal yourself to us, but also to call for faith in you. And, and I pray, Lord, that they would grow, even in the midst of this conflict, that they would grow in their thankfulness. And Father, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.